Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel, wherever you go, that you are a stranger. The outsider. The one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Hello and welcome to episode number 61 of The Extra Environmentalist. I'm your host, Seth Moserkatz, joined by my co-host, Justin Ritchie. And today we have the honor and privilege of talking with Richard Wolf, professor at the New School University in New York City. We're really fortunate to be speaking with Rick Wolf today because he is teaching the only course that I know of on the economic crisis at any university in New York City, and one of the few courses on the current economic crisis that fully understands the crisis of our economic system that the world is currently facing. And Professor Wolf um, has been working on various aspects of political economy and historical economic transitions and the current economic transition moment that we are currently in and does a great job on relating our current moment to historical moments. And Professor Wolf has a particular way of framing the current global economic crisis that really shows where the inflection points for historical change really lie. And so that's what we're going to be speaking with him about today. Actually, this interview was recorded in two parts over the last few months. We reached him from his office in New York via Skype for the first half of the interview, of which both Seth and I were present. And then the second half, we actually recorded in his house in New York uh, for a video that we'll be releasing sometime in the next few months. And for that second half of the interview, what we actually did is just cut my questions out so it all runs smoothly together. So we're going to jump right into this conversation with Dr. Wolf on how we get an alternative economic system off the ground here in the United States. Professor Wolf, thanks for joining us from Manhattan today to talk about Democracy at Work, your recent book. I wanted to start out in asking, could the United States actually exist with a different economic system besides capitalism? It seems like the ideas of capitalism have been bred into us through our education system. And how do you think we could actually get an alternative economic system off the ground in the United States? Well, I think that uh, the answer to that is probably best constructed out of examples from the past where similar kinds of transitions were in fact accomplished. I, I like to remind people that when 
capitalism the way we have it today was born three or four hundred years ago, depending on how you count, it arose as small businesses in the interstices of the previously existing economic system, which in the European case was feudalism. That is, most uh, of Europe from 500 AD to about 1500, 1600 AD was comprised of landlords and serfs living on feudal manors with little or no market exchange and a completely non-capitalistic system. And there were no such things as wage workers. There was no such thing as profits and so on. And in the interstices of that system, as it slowly began to break down, and that's key, crucial, as it couldn't reproduce itself towards the end of that period the way it had done before, it gave rise to dislocated people, people who could not find a livable space or position in feudalism and began gropingly to look for an alternative system, which we now call capitalism. Of course, they didn't have a name for it then. A relationship of employer and employee, wage labor, profit, corporations, and all of that, instead of serfs, landlords, feudal manners, and all of that. And my suspicion is we're going to see, we are already seeing in the United States, a fairly advanced degree of the breakdown of capitalism. The Occupy movement in the United States, for example, was in a very significant way an upsurge of large numbers, particularly of younger people in their 20s and 30s, who were discovering personally, painfully, that the education they had gone through, the expectations they had been led to believe by their parents, their teachers, and so forth, about the jobs they would be able to get with the educations they had accomplished, just weren't there. And not only weren't there now, gave no prospect of being there in the future, when indeed it looked worse than it even was in the present. And so they began to look around for alternatives, not out of a deep ideological commitment, not from sense of capitalism's exhaustion, although I, as an analyst, think that's what's going on, but in the minds of those people, like in the minds 300 years ago of the originators of capitalist uh, systems, it's a very practical matter of trying to invent, form, organize, motivate alternative ways of having a meaningful life that is engaging your mind and your body and that pays the rent in terms of an income. And I think you're finding Americans busy now re-examining our national history, re-examining the history books of other countries looking around in the present for what is a more promising, more viable method of organizing work and jobs than the one that is failing us, frankly. Uh, this is the worst economic downturn and breakdown of capitalism since the Great Depression. It marks the second global cataclysmic breakdown of capitalism in what is a historically short span of time, 75 years, and this one more global even than the one in the 30s, 
which tells you something as well. I think that's why it's becoming an urgent matter. I wrote that book, Democracy at Work, about one of such an alternative to capitalism, precisely because my earlier books, which were critiques of capitalism and of this crisis as an example, because the people who read my books and who accosted me at meetings and responded to my radio and television activity were saying to me, okay, we get the criticism. We see it anyway in our personal lives. What we need you to do is talk about alternatives and think that we're ready for it, that, that the mass of the American people are increasingly interested in exploring exactly that. Well, it's interesting that you say that the mass of the American people are interested in it. And you can see definite ideas and there's definite themes of that going on. In, in the media, you see just sparks of it. But in, in general, in large part, our politicians talk about economic everlasting growth as a political given. And no one ever seems to notice that our base of our whole economic system is very broken and, and in fact falling apart in many ways. What would it take for our current holders of political and economic power to let it change and evolve into that new system that you're talking about? Well, I don't expect them to let it happen, neither gracefully nor willingly. I don't think this kind of a change, which goes to the most basic institutions of our society, particularly the enterprises that produce all the goods and services we all depend on, my guess is we'll either need a dramatic change in the mindset and the personnel of the government to let that happen. And that in turn, I think, would require pretty far-reaching changes from below. I would say this. I've been personally kind of amazed. Uh, I give a simple statistic to show it. I've done more invited public speaking on the radio, on television, but also in terms of, of town meetings and so on. I've done more of that in the last two years than in the previous 40 years. So I am a walking evidence collection that the interest in this kind of thinking, in this kind of alternative, simply is off the chart. With all the attention that went to the tea parties, which are certainly an important phenomena on the right-wing end of our political spectrum, in my own experience, the transformations in consciousness at the left end of the political spectrum are at least as profound, and in terms of the number of people involved, much larger. So I think we're getting to the point where one can talk honestly about an imminent groundswell that will shake up our political system in ways for which the American people are really not well prepared. And again, the evidence is, is the Occupy movement. Between September and November of last year, 2011, a movement that no one had ever heard of, begun on a very peculiar basis as a group of people pitched tents in a, a small public park near Wall Street in Manhattan, transformed the discourse of America. I mean, ever since then, the phrase 1% versus 99%, which was a kind of taboo in America to think and talk like that up until a couple years ago, has become common language. 
Capitalism, which was a word you didn't encounter much, is now everywhere, is being discussed and debated. So I think that conventional politicians have had to accommodate and adjust. Uh, they don't want to. They're not used to it. When they do accommodate, it's awkward, it's hesitant, it's inconsistent. But I don't think in the end they're going to be able to do much other than accommodate the groundswell that's building or get out of the way and be pushed out of the way if they don't get out of the way. A last point. In many ways, I think the future, the next two or three years in America, is being portrayed for us almost in advance in Europe. That is, we have to understand that the economic crisis we have here is being had there. That the effort of the governments to manage it by bailouts was done there as it was done here. And that the effort of government to pay for the costly bailouts and the costly crisis by imposing austerity programs upon their people is being done there as it is being done here. Given all of those parallels, it would be naive of Americans to imagine that the explosive resistance and counter-social movement against all of that, that is transforming one European country after another as we speak, Italy is now transforming what its role in the future of Europe will be, much as has happened in Greece, Spain, Portugal, Ireland, Hungary, Poland, and I could go on. This is coming to the United States. And just like it is different in each European country to take account of its own history and politics and culture, the common theme that the masses of people will no longer tolerate a capitalism in this kind of horrific crisis, coupled with a bailout of the big banks at the top while everybody else's situation is bypassed, and then finished off with an austerity program that dares to make the mass of people pay for a crisis it didn't cause and a bailout it didn't participate in, to think that we are going to escape all of that in this country strikes me as naive, wishful thinking of an extreme sort. In Europe, we see the austerity and we see the austerity protests. And I always hear this dialogue among politicians in Europe where they say, well, if we don't have growth, we need austerity. And now there's austerity fatigue and everybody's talking about how do we return to growth. But there's this deeper crisis in the foundations of the economic system that you're talking about. And when I bring that up, a lot of people say, well, there's no alternative to capitalism. There's state socialism and that's been tried and it failed. What is an alternative that you could see emerging in the United States to capitalism and to the state socialism of the past? How could we actually start redesigning the economic system in the way it worked in the U.S.? Well, let me respond. But first, just a comment on the growth question that you rightly bring up. We have had economic growth over the last 10 or 15 years, dramatic growth. We've even had growth since the onset of the current crisis late in 2007, that is the last five years. But the growth has not been in the United States, and the growth has not been in Europe. It's been in China, in India, and in a few places like that. 
And it would be naive of people to imagine that that's going to change. Even if there was a quote-unquote return to growth, it's inaccurate. We've had growth. But the growth hasn't happened in Europe, and it isn't going to, because it is more profitable for capitalist enterprises to grow elsewhere. The growth we had in the West was when it was suitable for the profit-making structure of capitalist enterprise. That structure is now motivating growth elsewhere and stagnation or decline in the Western capitalist countries. The return to growth is a fantasy. The only way to do that would be the unthinkable, which is to get rid of capitalism because it's its way of functioning that has moved growth from one place to another. It's really no different from watching the Midwest become the Rust Belt because it was profitable for corporations to abandon Detroit or Cleveland or Toledo or Pittsburgh and move instead to Arizona and California and then Mexico and then China, etc. So this growth notion, as if you turn off one faucet called austerity by opening up another faucet called growth, misunderstands the economic constraints that we're in. Having said that, what's the alternative? Well, let's take a look. Yes, I understand the point that the efforts to build, uh, let's call it state socialism, some people call it state capitalism in the Soviet Union across the 20th century in parts of Eastern Europe, China, Cuba, Vietnam, etc. But before we wholeheartedly and a kind of casually dismiss all of that, let's remember a little history again. The early experiments in capitalism, let's call it the first century, of efforts in little outlying areas, then in whole regions to institute this new capitalist system, often came to grief, dissolved, were destroyed by warfare, by the simple inability to solve problems, by the angry competition of feudalism. So to look at the early efforts to get beyond capitalism, such as those in the Soviet Union, China, and so on, and to see the problems they've had or the collapse that the Soviet Union faced as some sort of final verdict of history, that's, again, more wishful thinking. That's not serious. The odd thing would have been if the first serious effort, that of the Soviet Union in 1917 to erect a non-capitalist system, the odd thing would have been if it had become successful, period, and forever. That would have been strange, much more reasonable to expect that it, like many other early efforts, would be failures after a while. It is, in fact, historically speaking, remarkable that the Soviet Union lasted 75 years, that the Chinese communist arrangement has now been going for 60 years, that the Chinese have been the most rapidly growing economy in the last 20 years, far out distancing any capitalist economy. These kinds of things are actually the remarkable features of this system, not the fact that its opening initiatives didn't last. But having said that, I understand the point 
that there are many things about the Soviet Union or China that are not attractive, that are not alternatives to capitalism that we want to pursue. So let's take a look. There's something in the history of the United States and Canada, for example, that we might look to as an alternative. And the answer is, for sure. And it's been an alternative for a long time. It goes under a number of names. Community production, cooperative production, collective production, self-employed workplaces where the self-employed are not just one or two persons, but a group of people who self-employ themselves, etc. And that has long history in the United States and Canada, going back centuries, indeed, from the times when we were colonies of Great Britain and so on, or of France in the case of Canada, and so on. And I think that we have to recognize that it is not at all unusual in human history for the coexistence of alternative economic systems, for example, capitalism on the one hand, and such cooperative production systems where employer and employee are not, as in capitalism, different people, but where the employer and the employee, as in cooperatives, are the same people. But it's also important to remember that for much of the early history of the United States, we had a coexisting capitalist system, uh, coexisting with cooperatives, coexisting with slavery in the southern states, and that that was eventually resolved, it, having coexisted quite nicely for quite a few decades, was eventually resolved by conflict and a civil war, all of which are a variety of ways that these contradictions and conflicts and coexistences have worked themselves out historically before. So here's my guess. And I, I admit, I mix into it a certain amount of, of hope and wish that the cooperative form, the notion that workers can and should collectively own, operate, and make the key decisions in all the enterprises, the factories, the offices, the schools, the stores, where they do their work, that that is a proper alternative. It should have been expanded before. It's a testimony to how successful uh, these kinds of enterprises can be, that despite the animosity of capitalism, these forms have existed both in the United States and Canada and in many other countries throughout the history of these countries. They have endured. Millions of Americans are involved in one kind of cooperative venture or another right now in the United States. My website, democracyatwork.info, is a central gathering place for these efforts, for information about these efforts. And I think that the growing failure of capitalism to meet the needs and desires of a growing number of people in Western Europe, in Japan, in the United States, is creating the interest of and the recruits for this kind of enterprise. And let me say, if I may, a few words about it. And I admit that this is an argument for it, but I think that's where the history of our countries is moving. You know, we take pride in the United States, at least, in making conscious reference often to a commitment to democracy to the notion 
that if a human being has to live with the consequences of a decision, then he or she must be given the right to fully participate, equal with all the other people affected by a decision in making that decision, that we do not accept the notion that some subgroup in our society has the power alone and exclusively to make decisions we have to live with. Well, if we take Americans seriously, or any other people for that matter, seriously in such commitments to democracy, then it becomes an arresting question why and how it ever became acceptable that the workplace, the place we spend most of our adult lives, typically five out of seven days a week, all the best hours of the day, we are at work. So if we're committed to democracy, why in the world would we have exempted the workplace where we spend most of our lives from the commitment to democracy we claim is one of our central principled uh, virtues and commitments? Why do we permit in most production uh, enterprises, a tiny group of people, typically the corporate board of directors, 15 to 20 persons, collaborating with the major shareholders, another 15 to 20 persons, to make all the basic decisions, what to produce, how to produce, where to produce, and what to do with the profits, so that the mass of the employees who depend on these decisions for their jobs, for their self-esteem, for their income, for the welfare of their families and communities. They will live with the results of enterprise decisions, but have no participation in reaching them. This is a contradiction to democracy that is gross, obvious, and flagrant. And it questions whether the commitment to democracy is even genuine. And beyond that, how in the world could you expect a democracy to work in the residential communities where we live through voting for our mayors and governors and political leaders if we ask that system to coexist with an economic system that is flagrantly anti-democratic? And I think the answer lies in the politics we have. We have a form of political democracy, but the reality is the corporate rich who run the corporations and who pay themselves the salaries that makes them a rich minority in the larger population have long ago understood that they cannot allow the political system to undo by the mass voting of democracy the absence of democracy and the inequality that capitalism generates in the economy. And so they have purchased the political leadership and thereby shown that in the end, if you allow non-democracy to prevail in your economy, it will prevail in the end in your political system as well. So for all these reasons, I think the prospects for a transition from capitalism to a democratic workplace to cooperatives is where we are going. And finally, that the success of cooperative enterprises 
and there are stunning examples around the world, will become beacons for how to achieve that here in the United States and in Canada. Now, a large portion of your book is about these worker self-directed enterprises. How are these different from co-ops and how would you actually see those getting off the ground? How would they actually start up and what would the workday be like in one of these worker self-directed enterprises? How would that be different from the non-democratic workplaces that so many people in the United States are used to today? Let me quickly dispose of the first part of your question. The word co-op has been widely used for centuries. So it is a much broader notion than what we mean by worker self-directed enterprises. In other words, co-op covers, for example, when individual capitalists, let's see, chocolate bean growers in Ghana, decide that even though they have independent enterprises, they are going to, quote, cooperate when it comes to selling the cocoa beans uh, on the world market, that they can do better so they have a cooperative selling arrangement. That is not what we mean. That's very interesting, but, but that's not what we're talking about because the work process is what's not being done cooperatively. It's only the selling process. Similarly, in the United States, there are many areas where farmers collectively cooperate either in owning the land and buying it or in owning and operating certain kinds of specialized machinery and so on. That's still cooperation, but it's not workers doing the work of production. And finally, another example of a co-op that we don't mean are the very popular in the United States right now, food co-ops, where groups of citizens agree to buy food in bulk cooperatively, thereby realizing enormous savings, and so the buying act is what is done cooperatively, but it has nothing to do with producing anything cooperatively. So we're interested in a subset of co-ops, in a particular kind of co-op, and that is where production is undertaken cooperatively. So now let me explain what a WSDE, a worker self-directed enterprise, how it works. And it'll be slightly stylized because we don't have that much time. So workers come and they do their specific task, as they always would have done in a capitalist firm, say Monday through Thursday. But on Friday they arrive and something very different happens. They set aside their specific workplace, their tools, their equipment, their assignments. And instead, they spend oh, half of Friday or all of Friday in meetings. And in those meetings, it's one person, one vote. And they take up the broader basic questions of their enterprise. Not their specific tasks, that's Monday through Thursday's work. But on Friday, they discuss whether they ought to change the mix of goods and services they're producing. Maybe in response to changing tastes among their customers, maybe responding to changing technology or whatever else is, is relevant. And they have debates about that and they reach decisions. Likewise, whether they ought to change the technologies they're using, either on grounds of environmentalism or the health and safety of workers or the development of new ways of doing things. And they make decisions about that. And third, they make decisions about where to produce. Uh, I like to point out that if the workers democratically made the decisions, the uh, act of 
closing a factory in, in Vancouver or in Cincinnati or in Texas and moving it to China would happen, let us say, much more rare than it currently does, since workers are not going to destroy their own jobs, their own incomes, their own communities in the rampant way that that has happened across the United States, for example, over the last century. And finally, on Friday, the workers would democratically decide what to do with the profits that are earned by the enterprise in which they work. And here, let me drive home to you the enormous differences from a capitalist enterprise. That is, we've already seen that in a regular capitalist enterprise, the decision about what to produce is made by the board of directors. They are governed only by what's profitable. Likewise, how to produce is made by the board of directors. If a toxic technology could make them more money, and if that toxic technology were instituted in a factory in Texas, but the board of directors is in New York City, one might expect that there are countless examples where they decide that the profits outweigh the toxicity, and if the workers in Texas don't like it, well, there are certainly immigrants from Mexico who will gladly take their jobs, etc. All of those kinds of decisions would no longer be made in the capitalist way with the usual results because the workers directly affected in each locale would be making those decisions democratically. But now let me focus on the decision of how to distribute profits. And rather than give you many little examples, let me dwell on one. Corporations in this country, that is the boards of directors and the major shareholders, make a very crucial decision about the profits. Namely, A, what portion of the profits is going to be used to reward managers and executives? Reward them with salary packages, reward them with stock options, reward them with year-end bonuses, and so on. Since the board of directors and the major shareholders are a small group of people, they are the ones who, over the last 30 years in the United States, have made the decision to reward CEOs and other top executives of American corporations fantastic payment packages easily averaging over $5 million for major corporations and going into the hundreds of millions of dollars for top 500 uh, mega corporations in the United States for their top executives. This has been the single most important cause of the growing gap between wealth and poverty of the stunning statistics about what the top 1% of our population earn. The majority of people in the 1% are not high-paid film actors. They are not great actors. They are the top executives of major corporations. The board of directors and shareholders has created the bulk of the growing inequality of wealth and income in the United States. And they were able to do that because they make an undemocratic decision about the uses of the profits that bulk workers helped to produce. So for those who are upset about growing inequality economically in the United States, who are upset 
about the corruption of political democracy by that thing, economic inequality, and all the cultural and psychological impacts it has, they would have to face with us the recognition that it is the capitalist structure of enterprises that sustains and fosters that inequality. And they would also have to recognize that nothing would turn around that inequality and move us back towards the so-called mass middle class that is now so widely bemoaned as having disappeared from the United States. Nothing would get us there sooner than allowing democracy to make the decision in our corporate enterprises about the disposition of profits. Believe me, if the workers together, democratically, made decisions about payment, they might very well allow some people to be paid more than others because of their education, because of the techniques they dispose of, because of a whole host of reasons. But would they allow some people to get tens and hundreds of millions of dollars while other ones have a hard time getting by with their families? Not a chance. And in case you're wondering about that, let me give you an example of the most successful cooperatively run enterprise on earth right now. It is called the Mondragon Cooperative Corporation, located in the city of Mondragon, Spain, in the Basque area of northern Spain. It is now a very large corporation. It began in the 1950s with six workers organized by a local Catholic priest into a little cooperative workshop. It has since grown over the last half century to a corporation now employing over 100,000 workers, making it the biggest corporation in northern Spain and the 10th largest corporation in all of Spain. It is owned it is operated and it is led by the worker members, roughly 35,000 out of that 100,000 who began this enterprise. The other 65,000 are in what is called a probation or transition period. It is the plan to make them worker members too. But the 35,000, the core of that enterprise, make all the decisions, what to produce, how to produce, to produce and what to do with the profits. And one of the decisions they made was that the gap between the highest paid and the lowest paid in all of cooperatives that they operate, factories, offices, stores, will not be greater than six and a half to one. That is, the best paid worker will get six and a half times what the lowest paid worker does. In America's larger corporations, the ratio is 200 to 400, depending on the corporation, to one. So they have been able to undo economic inequality, to reduce inequality down to a much more egalitarian level than anything that has been accomplished by the capitalism in the United States, or England, or France, or Italy, or Spain, or Japan, or anywhere So if you're concerned about economic inequality, then that would be one of the most powerful arguments 
to move in the direction of the practical decision-making, democratic decision-making that could run our enterprises, that has for a long time run cooperative enterprises, and that has functioned brilliantly to allow the Mondragon Corporation to become a modern, technologically advanced, large mega corporation, perfectly able to compete with any capitalist company. So what you say is extremely logical. It makes a lot of sense. And the Madrigal Corporation that you bring up in Spain is a prime example of this. I'm wondering, what is it about the other corporations, the capitalistic corporations in the world, that doesn't allow for the model to proliferate? Why is it that we are so focused on efficiency in the United States and make that the bottom line in all of our decisions and so that we don't really even think about the direct democracy that it provides for its people. Why do we not think about that? Well, I think there are many answers. Let me respond on the point of efficiency. I'm a professional economist. I've been a professor of economics all my life. Every textbook of economics speaks endlessly about efficiency. However, it is a very poorly understood concept and abused much more often than it is reasonably used. And let me give you an example. We have highly efficient automobile companies in the United States. We have highly efficient uh, rubber tire manufacturers. We have highly efficient uh, road construction companies. But we have the most inefficient transportation system the world has ever seen. Let us look at it with an eye to efficiency. Is the private automobile an efficient way to move people across distances? And the answer is no. Automobiles now are the major user of fossil fuels in the United States. Automobiles are the major polluter of the air in the United States. Automobiles foul huge quantities of our surface because they're rusting hulks that are largely buried in the ground with all kinds of toxic results. Automobiles are the largest killers of American people in automobile accidents, far exceeding what all our wars do in the way of killing and wounding people. So on the grounds of fuel efficiency, on the grounds of pollution efficiency, on the grounds of the efficiency of life, death and wounding, we would be much better off if we had a system of light rails transportation, of van transportation, of regular railroad and boat transportation. It's much more efficient. It would waste less resources and on and on and on. It is an example of stunning inefficiency. Our housing system is the same. It's much cheaper to heat houses that are built collectively, whether they're apartment houses or garden apartments or cooperative housing developments, childcare, laundry, home maintenance, fuel, heat, electricity, all of them is much more efficiently provided to people living in groups of housing units than people living in individual, isolated, single-family homes. 
We have the private car and we have the private home in the United States because it was profitable for capitalist enterprises to do that. The fact they are in themselves efficient does not offset the grotesque inefficiency of allowing their profit-seeking to shape the otherwise grotesquely inefficient mode of housing transportation, and I just chose those as examples. But that's the way we culturally train our people. We tell them that capitalism is efficient without telling them all the areas in which it is the opposite. We teach them that capitalism is some unique way for economic systems to grow. That isn't the case. The growth of the Mondragon Corporation is a much greater success story than most capitalist enterprises in the world today or who weren't in the world in the 1950s and have long disappeared by comparison. By the that mean that all cooperative enterprises will be successful? Of course not. They will have their failures. But there is nothing in the way of evidence to suggest that the capitalist system's inefficiencies and failures are somehow less than what would be the case in the much more democratic and egalitarian alternative that worker self-directed enterprises represents. So again, I think in the end, this is not a matter of economics. It is really a matter at this point of ideology, of beginning to persuade large numbers of people living in the capitalist world that they ought to explore the alternatives. They will then discover that those alternatives have always been around, that those alternatives have a lot going for them a lot to be said in their favor, and that there are living, practical examples of stunning success. And that's more than most people imagined would be there if they ever dared to question and to look for alternatives to capitalism. If this were a matter of persuading people, I would be quite pessimistic because long-developed, deeply entrenched habits of thought don't disappear overnight. But I am very optimistic about a transition to a new and different economic system because I have the ally in this process, capitalism itself. This crisis, which wasn't supposed to happen, which wasn't supposed to last anywhere near as long as it has lasted, which wasn't supposed to be so resistant to all the efforts of one government after another to end it. This is the biggest recruiter for the way of thinking I'm advocating that I could hope for. Capitalism is producing its own antithesis, its own critics. It's producing its critics a lot faster these days than it is producing its defenders. And therein lies the secret of how this transition is going to be produced. Segregated in classes. 
intrusion. Crack the coast off through the illusion. Nice clearing out all the confusion. Who the hell screaming revolution? Broke the doors to the institution. Crack the coast off through the illusion. Nice clearing out all the confusion. Got up and then he was shot down. 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 They won't get the wrong way. My advice would be because I don't have simple answers, two things. Hey. Precisely to start thinking. Don't get caught into this pseudo-activist pressure. Do something, let's do it, and so on and so on. No, the time is to think. I even provoked some of the leftist friends when I told them that if the, the famous Marxist formula was philosophers have only interpreted the world, the time is to change it. Thesis 11 on Feuerbach, that maybe today we should say in the 20th century, we maybe tried to change the world too quickly. The time is to interpret it again, to start thinking. Second thing, I'm not saying people are suffering, enduring horrible things, that we should just sit and think, but we should be very careful what we do. All the banks are broke. Bank Santander, Deutsche Bank, Royal Bank of Scotland, they're all broke. And why are they broke? It isn't an act of God. It isn't some sort of tsunami. They're broke because we have a system called fractional reserve banking, which means that banks can lend money that they don't actually have. It's a criminal scandal, and it's been going on for too long. Money dominates politics. And as a result, we have neither capitalism or democracy. Uh, we have we some have? kind of, we have crony capitalism. And as trades come in from all different sources, they cherry pick the trades that they'd like to keep for themselves, knowing ahead of time what the outcome will be, whether it'll be profitable or not. And the losing trades, they simply dump in other people's accounts. Um, and they do this all day long. And so does so do other, uh, other uh, market makers and hedgers like a Goldman Sachs. I mean, Lloyd Blankfein told Charlie Rose in New York City, this is exactly what they do. He admit, or uh, Jim Cramer told uh, Aaron Task, who's now MarketTicker.com, that this is exactly how he made money when he managed a hedge fund on Wall Street, by cherry-picking trades in a manipulative way by being a hedger and a market maker simultaneously. That's not capitalism. That's fraud. I think that, okay, it's so fashionable today to be disappointed at President Obama, of course, but sometimes I'm a little bit shocked by this disappointment, because what did the people expect? That he will introduce, that he will introduce socialism in the United States or what? So the beauty is to select a topic which touches the fundamentals of our ideology, but at the same time, we cannot be accused of promoting an impossible agenda, like abolish our private property or what. Now it's something that can be done, and is done relatively successfully, and so on. So that would be my idea, to carefully select issues where we do stir up public debate, but we cannot be accused of being utopians in the bad sense of the term. All the things he said, we already knew them. But for some reason, we just didn't do them. The same way this air is polluted. That's the way the truth is diluted. Such a shame we are turning to cowards. We the people had surrendered our powers. So dependent on those we elect. Didn't bother to inspect their intentions. So who the hell screaming revolution? Broke the doors to the institution. 
listening to The Extra Environmentalist. Today we're talking with Professor Richard Wolff about the crisis of capitalism. It is my view, and it has been my view for a couple of years now, that the conditions in Europe and the United States are so similar, and the policy responses of the governments are so similar, that it would be surprising if we didn't have similar responses in the population. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, in places like Greece or Spain, there is a severe economic crunch. Millions of people have been thrown out of their jobs. Uh, millions in the United States have, in addition, been thrown out of their houses. That's a little less of a phenomenon in Europe than it is in the United States, but in a sense, that makes the United States even more. Europe has a set of social programs that help people in an economic downturn. We don't. So in actuality, uh, for example, medical coverage, you get that in European countries as a matter of citizenship, not as a matter of employment. Here in the United States, much more linked to employment, etc. So the conditions here that people are going through in the crisis are, if anything, worse than the conditions in Europe uh, in terms of the impact on millions of families. Number two, what is also similar between the two societies is the austerity response, that governments are responding not to the suffering of the mass of people by helping them, but instead responding to the budget difficulties of governments. Since they borrowed massively to bail out the banks and large corporations, they are now trying to fix the budgets that were broken of the government, and austerity is the plan. Raise taxes on the people and lower the government spending on social programs. That's being done in Europe. That's being done in the United States. The agreement just reached, the so-called fiscal cliff deal that was worked out, is an austerity program. The Republicans and Democrats agree on an austerity program. They only disagree on the details of exactly who's going to be taxed and exactly who's going to have their spending cut. So what did you see in Europe that I find so remarkable in terms of the future of the United States? You saw the most massive protests of people trade unions, socialist parties, communist parties, anti-capitalist parties, social movements of all kinds coming together in ways they have not done before on programs of protest much larger than what we've seen for half a century, much more coordinated inside each country, and the most stunning thing, coordinated continent-wide. September of 2011, and again in 2012, you had a coordinated set of demonstrations on the same day in 20 countries. It's extraordinary. It's a massive protest that is still building in its strength and its effects. I said, starting two years ago, that this commonality, crisis, quite similar, suffering, quite similar, austerity program of the government, quite similar in Europe and the United States, would mean that the logical thing to assume is a similar kind of response. People here thought it would never happen because somehow Americans are passive or Americans don't respond that way or Americans don't trust organizations. I didn't agree with this argument and I don't now. I think there's an easy explanation. After World War II in the United States, there was a wild and su sustained response of the business community and the rich to what had happened here the last time capitalism collapsed in the 1930s. We had a terrible depression, as Europe did. 
But what was unique in this country was an upsurge of mass protest from below, the likes of which no one expected and was very different from Europe. It was new. You had an upsurge, first of all, of the greatest trade union organizing uh, sweep of the United States that we have ever had. We'd never had anything like that before. We've never had anything like it since. Millions of people who had never been members of a union joined the CIO, Congress of Industrial Organizations, throughout the middle of the 1930s, the depths of the Depression. We had an upsurge in a number of socialist parties, and we had a very powerful communist party. And they all worked together to produce this unionization plus politicization program. They went to the president at that time, Franklin Roosevelt, and they basically said, look, we represent millions of people. They are suffering on a scale nobody was prepared for. And we include a whole lot of people who are socialists and communists. The unionists amongst us are saying, you've got to do something for the mass of the people. And the socialists and communists amongst us, with whom we work clearly, are saying something else. You have to do something for the people, or we're going to overthrow this system. And they pointed to Russia in case anyone had a doubt as to what they meant. Roosevelt was a smart politician. Roosevelt knew he had to cut a deal. And he went to the rich and the corporations and he said, I have to do something for these people or we're all in the soup. He, he, he split them. Half of them were not persuaded by Roosevelt's argument, but half of them were. And with the half who were and the mass of the working class, Roosevelt was able to do in the midst of a depression three times worse by unemployment data than the one we have today, Roosevelt was able to push through a massive program of helping the mass of people. He created the social security system. We never had that before. He went in the middle of a depression when there's no money, so-called. He went and said every person over 65 is now going to get a check for the rest of their life every month. No sooner was that done than he announced the creation of the unemployment compensation system. We never had that before in the United States. If you're unemployed through no fault of your own, you will get a check for one, two, maybe even three years every week. And there were millions of those people at that time. And when that was barely out of his mouth, he articulated the third step. He said the following. If the private sector of the American economy cannot or will not create jobs for the millions of people that are unemployed, there is no option but that the government do it. I will do it. And between 34 and 41, he created and filled 12 and a half million jobs. That's a conservative estimate. That needed money, tons of money, all those programs for the mass of people. And he got it by taxing the rich and taxing corporations, a huge amount, tremendous increases in their taxes, the likes of which we don't even discuss in the United States today. And he, he got that through. Immediately when the war was over, the business community, who hated this, oh, and a footnote, some people think this can't be done, no politician could dare do it. Let's remember that the one politician who did this, Roosevelt, was re-elected president four consecutive times in the United States. He was the most popular president in the history of this country. Nobody has ever come close. So freaked out was the Republican Party by the four elections he won in a row that after he was dead in 1945 and died, they passed the law which now limits all presidents to two consecutive terms. So the notion a politician in America couldn't dare tax corporations and the rich to be a program for the mass of people, he would never be reelected, the opposite is the truth. 
That's how you become the most popular president in American history. After the war, that half of the ruling class in America, the rich and the corporations, who never wanted this program, who were furious about, who hated Roosevelt as a class traitor and were horrified that he kept being reelected, they went to work to make sure this never happens again. And they understood what they had to do. They had to destroy the organizations that did this from below. The labor movement, the socialists, and the communists. And the history of 50 years after World War II is the systematic destruction of those institutions in the United States. First by linking them to the Soviet Union as traitors or, or spies or all of that stuff, and then thereafter by portraying labor unions as evil institutions, as undemocratic, all the, the everything we know, starting in 1947 with the Taft-Hartley bill, with the anti-communist craziness of the McCarthy era, and on and on and on. And what do we have? Today in the United States, the Communist Party barely exists, has no political influence. Socialist parties barely exist, have no political influence. And the labor movement now represents less than 7% of workers in the private sector in the United States. It is at a 50-year low in terms of its size and of its political power. So what we have in the United States, which the Europeans don't have, is destroyed organizations of the left. And the reason we're taking longer to respond to the crisis and to the austerity programs imposed on the American people is unlike the Europeans, we don't have the organizations that can swing people into force and into mobilization quickly. What the trade unions in Europe can and do do, what the communist parties do, what the socialist parties do, is they have long-standing networks of people who know each other, who collaborate with each other, who trust each other, and when a call goes out, get out on the street and demonstrate against this or that politician or this or that law, it takes 20 minutes to get 50 people into the corner square in every village because these are the same people who've worked together for a law. We don't have that in the United States. But that doesn't mean it won't happen here. It will take a different form, and it will have its own pace and rhythm. So when, it, to the surprise of everybody, in September of 2011, out of nowhere, a group of people camping out in Zuccotti Park in, in New York City do something, everybody's amazed how quickly they become popular how quickly they have a social effect, how quickly the mass of people in poll after poll are sympathetic with what they're doing, I'm not surprised. That has been building. We haven't had the outburst of it. We haven't had the formalized, organized, visible presence. But what Occupy showed was it's all there, all the raw materials, the issues, the built-up feeling, the determination, the willingness to act, they're all there. They need an organizational form. The first one, Occupy, lasts three, four months in its prime, then it fades. I'm not surprised by that either. We have to find here in the United States the particular organizational forms that work here under the conditions we have, with the history we have, with the culture we have. It will not be the same as what happens in Europe. But all the issues are, in, uh, are the same, the basic forces at play are the same, and the capacity of the Americans to act politically was demonstrated by Occupy. And since, from the standpoint of 2013, every one of the issues that provoked 
occupy is now worse for the mass of people than it was a year ago. And the experience of Occupy has trained a whole new generation of young people about how to organize and mobilize, how to deal with the older trade unions, how to deal with the media. So I am very confident, given the austerity being imposed on the United States, and we're only at the beginning of it, and given that the crisis is not only not over but shows no sign of being over anytime soon, all the conditions are in place for me to be very confident and I'm not an optimist by nature, but be very confident, we are going to see our American version of the upsurge of protest in Europe and probably in the year 2013. My wife is a psychotherapist and loves to point out to me that the overwhelmingly dominant themes of films and books in the last several years of the United States are about catastrophes like earthquakes and floods or zombies descending on the world. It is this foretaste of gloom and doom, which is a peculiar sentiment coming out of the American people that they know something fundamental is dying, is, is ending, is passing. And that is always terrifying. But I'm confident that human beings who have gone through many other examples of this the end of the old Roman Empire, or for that matter, the Greek empires before it, the end of slavery, the end of feudalism. In each case, there were these foretastes of doom and gloom and collapse and abyss and chaos and all of that. But people have to live and people have to survive. And there's an instinct that's very powerful in the human race. And my guess is that as capitalism, which I think has already been going on now for some years, discovers more and more difficulties that it can't solve, more and more problems that it doesn't know how to resolve, more and more differences that it can't bridge, that people will begin, and I'm one of them, to look for alternatives, to ask questions about them. You know, there are more co-ops in the United States now than there have been for quite some years. People are not waiting for capitalism to collapse. People are starting to look for other ways to build a meaningful work life. And if there aren't any jobs from the capitalists, they're looking for other ways. Some of them, of course, find the traditional ways. I'm a self-employed person. I'll become a consultant or a contract worker or all those images. And that will be one way that people find a way out of a capitalist system that doesn't work anymore. It used to be said in the defense of capitalism as I was growing up in the United States that, yes, it has its problems, but capitalism delivers the goods. It doesn't anymore. It's mostly delivering bads to most people. And that is going to require a fundamental shift in the way Americans think and act, including economically. And they're going to look around for models. And the co-op, which has always been here in the United States and important, is going to be revived. That's already happening. Looked at, adjusted, changed to fit the circumstances. Let me give you an example of a concrete in Italy, back in the mid-80s, serious unemployment, they passed a law. It's called the Marcora Law, after the Italian legislator who, whose name is attached to the bill. Under the Marcora Law, the Italian, and it's still the law in Italy, the Italian government gives unemployed workers the following option. Option A, the two options, A and B. A, 
you can go on the dole, like unemployed workers do elsewhere, and we will give you a check for so many euros in Italy per month, per month or per week uh, for the year or two or three that we cover you. Option B, we will give you the entire amount in a lump sum right now instead of your waiting every week on the following two conditions. You must find at least nine other Italian unemployed who will make the same decision you do. And two, you have to pool, all ten of you, you have to pool the lump sum we give you to make it the beginning capital of a cooperative enterprise you are all committed to create and work in. The idea of the Italians was when we haven't got jobs for the people from capitalists, we can harness the greater commitment they'll give to an enterprise they are co-owners and managers of than we would get from them. Any- they'll make that work. They will work harder to make that enterprise work than any other arrangement we can find. It's a good investment, and in the end, it doesn't cost the government more than we would have paid them every week anyway. Very successful program. The only interesting question is, why does every other country not have this? Why in the United States do we not have that? Why do we have neither Republicans or Democrats even thinking of it or proposing it? And if I can find out about it by hitting my Google Marcora law, so can everybody else. So this is an, a refusal of the capitalist system to allow the public discussion and exploration of the alternative to a system that doesn't work for most people. As long as the people at the top for whom this system works can control what is understood about it and its alternatives, we will live in that declining world and our major image will be zombies and catastrophe. But it doesn't have to be that way and many of us are working to push in a different direction. Much will be improved in the United States and in the world if we democratize enterprises. But it's not a panacea that solves all our problems. You'll still have a toothache. You will still have difficulties with the people who step on your flower bed, etc., etc. It's not a solution to everything, and I don't want to defend it as if it made that claim. So is it possible that worker self-directed enterprises will be insensitive to questions of climate change or pollution or environmental? Yes, that's possible. But let me then give you arguments why I am hopeful that that kind of a change will make a difference. And one I I mentioned earlier, but I want to go back to it. One of the reasons we have had so much difficulty getting ecological sensitivity built in to our culture and our society is that it isn't built into the decision-making apparatus of our enterprises. They choose the production of goods and services that can have terrible effects on the environment because the people who get the profits of the enterprise are a tiny minority who can use the extraordinary incomes they get from production to insulate themselves from the very ecological catastrophe their decisions produce. The simplest example, if you look where the top executives of American corporations live, they live in suburban, gated communities where they can locate in a woodsy area or near the... They escape the noise pollution, the air pollution, the water pollution. They have the means, 
because of their position in the enterprise, to escape. And that means the people who have to live with the pollution, the economic and ecological destruction, are excluded from the situation and have to live with the results. One of the things I would expect and hope for is that when the people who make the decision have to live with the consequences, the decisions will be different. You're not going to institute a dangerous ecological production system that has all these horrible effects on the environment if you, your wife, your husband, your children, your neighbors, your community have to live with them. They're real to you. You can't escape from them because you're the people who live right there with them. In other words, I believe that when we make the arguments, those of us concerned with an ecological dimension of life, when we make the arguments to the decision makers, now that they are the workers themselves, when they see what it might mean, they're not going to say profit is the bottom line or profit is our number one priority. Because it isn't. Profit is one thing they will consider, but the health of their families is another. If the profiteer is the same person as the one who has to live with the ecological consequences, we're going to get different decisions. They're not always going to sacrifice ecology for profit because it makes no sense. That's whacking your left leg for the benefit of your right leg. Mm -mm. And different way of thinking about this is now going to emerge. So I would say... Does it guarantee we will solve these problems? No. Is it a step in that direction? Big time. Big time step in that direction. Just as it is uh, for the inequalities of our society. You know, many of our ecological problems come out of the fact that if you have a lot of money, you can escape from some of the degradation of the environment. So you are less concerned with preserving it because you have an option. You can escape. Masses of people with limited money cannot escape if the people who can't escape made the decisions rather than the people who can escape, so we need to have a less unequal distribution of income so we don't create a subculture that it can escape that happens to be the same people who make the production decisions. So if we distributed wealth more equitably, and how would that happen? Only, only. Not by a law, we've seen that those don't work. Not by a regulation, we see that those don't work. Not by an invocation by the minister in Sunday on church, because we see that that doesn't work. So my suggestion, let's put the mass of people in control of the decisions where they work. They won't distribute the income from work the way it has been done in capitalism. And that, too, will help move towards an ecologically more sustainable and more human-friendly, nature-respecting set of decisions. I've learned that an explanation of the crisis here in New York City, where it all began and where it is still the financial core of the global capitalist system, that a course that is critical of capitalism, that sees the crisis as the manifestation of a fundamental instability of capitalism, that points out, as I do, that capitalism has a cycle every five, six years, that some of these are very bad, last a long time, like the current one, that uh, a system this unstable should long ago have been questioned because 
of such an instability. I like to entertain my students by saying, if you lived with a roommate as unstable as capitalism, you would have moved out long ago, or you would have insisted that your roommate get professional help. Yet we live in an economic system that throws millions of people out of work at the same time that it needs the output that it is capable of getting from them. This is lunacy. What in the world makes us do that? I've discovered that this approach to the crisis is exciting for students. I have more students than I can handle. My classes are over full. They sometimes have to be moved to larger rooms at the new school university where I teach. So there is no problem at all in bringing students to the awareness that having spent a lifetime learning about the virtues of capitalism, and it has some virtues, they have been terribly deprived out of never hearing a sustained critique. So let me end with a metaphor. If you wanted to learn about the dynamics of a family that lived down the street from you, a family, say, with a father, a mother, and two kids, and you knew by a little research that one of the kids thought this was the best family and felt so lucky to have been born and raised in that family, Whereas the other one thought this family amounted to a psychological basket case of grief and trouble that the rest of his or her life would be needing psychotherapy to get out of. If you wanted to understand that family, would you speak to one child or the other? Or would you think it's reasonable for you to talk to both of the children and then make whatever judgment you think is appropriate given the questions you've asked and the answers you've heard? Economics is just like, you want to understand capitalism, I have a piece of advice for you. Go and listen to those who think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. But also acquaint yourself with people who think it's got terrible flaws, terrible weaknesses. People who like the slogan, modern society can do better than capitalism. And then make up your own mind. The problem in the United States has been that for 50 years, the critical perspective has been so excluded from the popular curriculums of our universities and colleges and high schools that it'll take a good piece of work for some years to begin to rectify. But the demand of a capitalism that is as dysfunctional as the one we have now is the largest recruiter of people making the demand for that to happen. Well, there I am very optimistic. I have no doubt in my mind that uh, if the uh, peasants in the north of Spain could figure out with the Catholic priest leading them how to make a co-op that would be as successful as Mondragon, if the history of cooperative enterprises is such that they have survived the last 200 years of U.S. history despite all the efforts to make a cooperative enterprise appear to be something antiquated, inefficient, impossible, utopian. My guess is that as capitalism breaks down, which is what I think we're engaged in, not just with the crisis, you know, the history of capitalism is downturn followed by upturn. So I fully expect we will have an upturn. Maybe not this year or the next year. We will have it. But meanwhile, the trend is what I'm more interested in. And the trend is down. Jobs not available. Debts too high for students to get through. Average income. People don't know. In the last two years, 2011, 2012, the real average real wage in the United States has fallen 2.5%. So 
So whatever happens to unemployment, the actual standard of living of our working class keeps being reduced, even as the wages and, and incomes of those at the top go up. This is not a sustainable arrangement, especially not in a society like ours that has thought of itself as middle class almost universally for decades. Very hard to impose on people who think of themselves as in the middle the reality that screams poverty more and more with each period of time. I think economic systems have collapsed, not because people had a clear idea of what the alternative was. The people who couldn't stand slavery anymore didn't have a clear idea of what the next system would be. And the people who couldn't stand feudalism and who made capitalism, they didn't leave feudalism because they liked capitalism. They left feudalism because it was unbearable. And then they groped their way to something new, which we retrospectively figured out was a system called capitalism. Capitalism is producing the people who are running away from it. And they will, thanks to the work of co-ops all around the world, they will find their way to that idea as one of the ways forward when an old system cannot anymore meet the needs of the people it's supposed to serve. Final point. Americans take a certain pride, perhaps deserved, that they question and debate basic systems in their society. So we debate schools, our education system. Should it be different? What's the strengths and weaknesses? We debate our health insurance system the last couple of years, very intensive. We debate our transportation system. We debate our energy system. The one system we have been unable and fearful of debating for 50 years is our economic system. Everybody's supposed to be a cheerleader for capitalism. That's not submit, submitting a system to debate. That's not honestly facing its strengths and weaknesses. We thought anybody who talked about weaknesses of capitalism was a foreign spy or an ignoramus or an uneducated person. That's a game. We need to def to debate the strengths and weaknesses to figure out if we can do better. If our education system is better because we debate it, or our health delivery system is better because we debate it, or our school system, then it follows for the economic system. And to put it the same thing in a different way, we're now paying the price of a dysfunctional capitalist system, and we don't know what to do because we were afraid to debate the strengths and weaknesses for 50 years. And now we're stuck with a system which has all the signs of what happens if you're afraid to debate something. It rots. It indulges its worst tendencies because nobody says, hey, wait a minute, this isn't working real well. So better late than never, now's the time. And as this system shows its weaknesses, its failures, I think the American people, the European people, will find from their own traditions alternatives to explore. Mondragon co-ops are going to be a major part of the experimentation and the directions that people are going to pursue. The easiest way to find out about uh, the writing, the uh, interviews on the media, the lectures, the classes, all the things we do, is to go to the two basic websites that we maintain for that. One uh, has all of my work on it. It's simple, rdwolf with two Fs dot com. Go there, and everything I have done for the last several years is available there, 24 hours a day, no charge whatsoever.
There it is. The other one is a website devoted to the social movement in the United States to bring democracy to workplaces, to enterprises, to transform enterprise from the old, traditional, hierarchical capitalist system to the democratic worker self-directed. And that website is democracyatwork.info. So whether it's rdwolf.com or democracyatwork.info, these are the two places where you can find out all the literature, find out about all these co-ops around the world, how they work, descriptions, video of them, etc. It's all gathered there. It's all available. Make use of it. So that closes out our interview with Professor Richard Wolf in talking about the crisis of capitalism, the potential approaches to a new alternative economic system that workplace democracy provides, and some detail about co-ops. And so one of the key things that we highlighted in our conversation today was the way in which a lot of us like to think that we live in a democratic society, but the place where so many people in the United States live a tremendous part of their lives is in the workplace, which is not a democratic institution in itself. And I know that you can speak from your workplace experience, Seth, how our workplace is not a democracy by any means at all. That's absolutely right, Justin. For anybody who has ever held down a nine to five job or even, you know, part time job, there's a lot of a lot of inadequacies and a lot of disparities that come along with being in a workplace, whether that is a unfair boss or it's at will employment where they can just fire you whenever they feel like um, there's a lot of a lot of angst that goes along with being employed because for most people, that's where the sole income is coming from. This is saying whether you eat, whether you have a place to live, this is whether or not your kids go to school. This is dictating a huge part of your life. And for most people, I'm not saying all, but for most people in this world, a job is usually a not very fun thing to do. It is a job for a reason. It's it's work for a reason. And I come across that a lot in my in my my day-to-day activities is running into these things where it's not pleasant to be at a workplace sitting in a cubicle for eight hours plus a day. Uh, I'm lucky enough to be able to move around a little bit in my job, but for a lot of people who I work with, they are not. They're very, very sedentary in their lifestyles, and they don't move around. They sit at their desks, and they use their computers, and for many people around the world, this is this is the daily life. This is something that they do every single day, it's whether it's a spreadsheet or a, a word processing program, an email program. This is the way that they've lived their whole lives for 30-plus years. 
it's become part of them. Yeah, and, and one of the ways that Professor Wolf was suggesting that we infuse democracy into our institutions is, is through the workplace environment. And he was saying in a worker self-directed enterprise that every Friday is the day where all the workers, whether you are a janitor or an executive or uh, you know a factory floor assembler, that you get together and you have meetings, not even about the state of that particular company, but about the state of the whole enterprise itself and where that particular company and its operations fit into the larger context of the whole industry and that whole sector of the economy, which to most people who are trained in any kind of traditional economic thinking that's taught at most universities now, that sounds horribly inefficient. I'm sure if you go up to any MBA student and say, hey, why don't we just take every Friday and none of our people at our office, we pay them, but they sit around and they make decisions. That's absolutely the opposite of what most people learn in their MBA programs and schools. What do you think that would look like in your workplace environment, Seth? Right, that's a very interesting point. And I feel like a lot of people would would feel themselves that they would not be qualified to do that. They would they would feel that they did not have the experience and they did not have the leadership qualities to be able to make those kind of decisions. To be put in those kind of positions is a very stressful activity. And for a lot of people, that's not really where they want to be. They want to go to work every single day and do the same thing, do exactly what they're told, not think about what they're doing, and and just just do what the, their boss tells them to. Um, I, I don't know, Justin. That would be a very radically different way to structure the workplace, especially in, in a company like uh, a large company like where I work. What, what do you think? Well, from the experience I've had at uh, the numerous different workplaces, whether it was a corporation or a small business or you know delivering pizza, it would be a, a radically different way of organizing. And I know that for most people, like you say, there really are a lot of people who really do just want to go into their jobs and get things done and leave as soon as possible. And so a lot of them probably wouldn't view the whole aspect of going in and helping to make management decisions as something that they even necessarily want to be involved in because they've been so heavily conditioned throughout their education and their workplace experience to not have to worry about those things. Like they go in and like you said, focus on that specific task and get it done. But in terms of a broader cultural shift that that can contribute to, do you think that that's something that perhaps the upcoming generation that really does want more out of their jobs, who wants a more holistic experience from their their, uh, livelihood, who do want to be more creatively engaged than perhaps previous generations did, do you think that's something that uh, this generation could buy into over time? Or is it so radically different that it could take a very long time? I would really like to see the younger generations buying into this idea. And I think that they're perfectly prepared to do this, especially with the uh, communication a revolution that has kind of taken the world by storm. If you have an idea, you have a, a new way of doing things, you have an, a new innovative method of solving a problem that's been around for a long time in your workplace, you now have the initiative and you've been trained since you were a young age to be able to put that those ideas forward and be heard. And as people who are more familiar with these ideas and, be, and more familiar with this kind of circular communication style become more in, into power, I think that you're going to see more and more of these ideas circulating to the top very quickly and and the kind of 
top-down leadership structure that is in many businesses today is going to become a thing of the past. Another thing that we discussed today was how in the Mondragon cooperatives in the Basque region of Spain, which have been highly successful, even by traditional global capitalist terms, they set the ratio of pay to 6.5 to 1 from the lowest paid worker to the highest paid worker. So even the top member of the organization only makes six and a half times what the janitor may make if that's the lowest paid worker in the organization. And for many U.S. corporations, it's 200 to 400 to one, that same ratio. That's pretty mind-blowing to think of the cultural difference that that provides to putting everyone on a semi-equal footing. I think you'd have to have a structure like that if you had any kind of you know, workplace voting structure like we were discussing, because if there's a guy sitting at the table who makes 400 times what you make, immediately because of the, the social dynamics around money, you're just so used to uh, you know, even the way the media portrays people who make a lot of money, there's a lot of people who become perpetual media moguls just because people in the media continually interview them on topics that really they have no qualification talking about. Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> That's absolutely right, Justin. And that, that, that dichotomy that exists between the rich and the poor is one of the largest uh, factors of disharmony in, in many businesses and many social classes around the world. But for somebody who makes that you know incredible amount of money to somebody who working for the same exact company makes a whole lot less, they have a very different perspective when they come to tackling ideas and they come to pr priorities and perspectives. And like you said, in the Mondragon Corporation, when you have everybody sitting down at the same table making the same kind of decisions about the future of a company that everybody is working for the same people are working for it becomes a little bit a little bit different and it and it be, it allows people to come from that that same kind of perspective when they're making the same kind of money and so one story i saw recently on npr which came out in October. It was about how the Basque region really outshines what's going on in the rest of Spain because they have such a heavily cooperatized economy. And while cooperatives are not immune to diminished economic activity, the Basque region is experiencing roughly half the rate of employment as the rest of Spain. And that's tremendous when a whole region can have an unemployment rate of around 12% when the rest of Spain has an unemployment rate of about 26 or 27 percent. So clearly these kinds of organizations have the ability in hard times to share resources in a way that are more equitable. Just one example of how they can fare better in hard times than highly inequitable workplaces is when there's diminished revenues for the business, they can vote that everybody takes work time reductions so everybody works five less hours a week rather than firing a large number of employees. And that's a tremendously valuable way to adapt to hard times because it means that you don't lose the amount of knowledge and human capital that you have in the workplace because they're still part of the work environment. You haven't laid them off and sent them packing for something else. But one thing that Rick Wolf brought up was this thing that's in Italy called the Marcona Law, where instead of getting unemployment checks like how you would in the United States or employment insurance in Canada, you can get a group of people together and start a worker-owned cooperative and then pull together your resources and get several years of the unemployment payments together to start that business. 
What do you think of that idea? If suddenly there were a number of people who got laid off and then it was like, well, you got several years of your unemployment in advance in order to start a new company. How does that sound? Well, that's a really interesting idea, Justin. I think that actively paying people upfront all that employment money so that they can start a new business is a is a great way. You know, I, you know, I, I know lots of people who have side businesses all the time who just who's tell me that only if I had a few more, you know, a few more hours a week or a few more dollars, I could start this side project and I could make it my whole living. If I, if I had that extra little push, I could jump into this new side business, which is really what I would like to do, work for myself, not have to worry about working for, the, for an employer and, and being tied to all this, this hassle. And for a lot of people, that is the dream. I think a lot of people dream about being able to work for themselves. Absolutely. I think it's a great idea. And so perhaps you could think that, you know, given all the challenges of peak oil and climate change, how realistic is it that having more democratic workplaces are really going to solve that? Well, it's another one of those tools in the whole bag of tools that can help address these issues. And as we discussed today, we're not going to have the ability to even make decisions on processes in our society if we don't have more democratic institutions. And it's not like the workers at a democratic uh, workplace are going to vote to outsource themselves or install some kind of toxic chemical. I think that if you're thinking about the future of ecologically sustainable businesses, they're going to have to be more equitable and they're going to have to also be more democratic in their decision-making process. So in wrapping up our discussion on, on this conversation today, one thing that kept coming back to my mind was the importance for people to actually start businesses in this vein and to, one, be aware that this is a viable model for a business. And there's plenty of examples of viable worker-owned cooperatives and also democratic workplaces. So one, it's getting people to know that it exists. But two, I can't help but think, what will the next generation of entrepreneurs look like? Because so many of the businesses we have today are based on completely false and useless business models and selling a bunch of junk that we don't need. You know, what is this next generation of, of entrepreneurs and people who start businesses going to look like? I think a lot of it will be food entrepreneurs. Yeah, food trucks have definitely taken off in the town where I live. I know that I've never really had as many food trucks in this city as there are today. I mean, you go anywhere and they're having food truck rodeos. They're having all sorts of mobile food explosions. And this, these are tasty, tasty foods. So that that's definitely one arena where the younger generation is going to have a lot different experience than, than we did growing up. Um, and I think another one is going to be around sustainability. I mean, these ideas have become larger and larger and everywhere you look nowadays there's like a permaculture workshop or there's a a new uh, skills building convergence i'm going to be heading up to the firefly convergence in Asheville the end of this month in june and we're actually going to be making a documentary about that but what this what's happening at this skills convergence here is there a bunch of talented people are getting together sharing skills sharing ideas and this is building community. And this is exactly what we've been talking about uh, for a number of episodes is about this building of community, especially uh, Dmitry Orlov talked about this last, last episode about how community building is the most important thing. And we're going to see these kind of workshops and activities and group, group gatherings becoming more and more prevalent, especially as the relevance of higher education be, continues to dwindle and be, continues to 
show how inadequate it is for living in the world that we do today. So those two things are definitely some emerging markets of change that are that are going to separate our generations from the new and upcoming generations as well. I think that the future uh, of markets and businesses will look radically different from how we've come to expect them to look over the last century. And, uh, you know, even though it can be really stressful and scary in a lot of ways, it can be really exciting to think about all of the different ways that things are going to change and reshape themselves in this regard in the, in the near future. But to close out, I wanted to hit on um, one point that, that Rick Wolf brought up, and that was on efficiency. And you can think that, you know, having your workers sit around and debate things is, is highly inefficient. But how efficient is it to have have all of these, uh, you know, silly private cars and private homes that work to the existence and benefit of uh, private corporations. And that brings up how Europe is really leading the way on the transportation transition that is happening, where I was just reading a news article this week uh, sent to me via Twitter by Brian SJ3. And he sent this article that said that almost two new bikes are sold for every new car in Europe. And um, I actually found another article that said that more bikes were sold in Italy in 2012 than cars. There were about 1.6 million bikes sold in Italy versus about 1.4 million cars. And, you know, there can be as many, you know, magazine covers with smiley faces that say, well, we may never run out of oil uh, that, that you want. But the reality is that the transportation transition is fully underway in countries that are experiencing the full brunt of high energy costs. You know, when when you have so many bikes that are being sold versus cars, it really shows how the whole industry is in decline. Yeah, Justin, that's really interesting. And while you're talking about articles, I saw this one that was pretty, pretty crazy uh, about Japanese companies using banishment rooms to push their employees to to quit. And what they're doing is for these managers who are too scared to tell their employees that they're fired or you know make them leave, they're sending them these to these banishment rooms where they're indirectly forcing them to resign on their own uh, without the the compensation packages, the firing packages that usually come along with them. <laughs> Can you imagine being sent to one of these rooms when they're they, they're like, all right, here's this room. You don't have anything to do. You're just going to sit in here and, and do nothing and just sit and staple papers all day long. Yeah, I'm looking at the article now, and it said that they had to, in some of the banishment rooms, they had to stare at a TV monitor for 10 hours at a time each day uh, in order to look for program footage irregularities. That's just really ridiculous. <laughs> it reminds me of that scene in Office Space where they send that one worker down to the basement <laughs> and instead of firing him, and he just keeps coming into work every single day. Yeah, <laughs> where's where's my stapler? Have you seen my stapler? Yeah, and it it's, it speaks to this larger trend that we were discussing today around how the economic system's breaking down and the methods of work that were employed by the economic system are becoming more and more absurd all the time. And that also uh, speaks to the whole system of debt that is in the economy as well. Um, there, there's an article that we'll link to in the show notes. It's about how in Greece the government is considering labor camps for poor taxpayers so that people who are in debt uh, because of their taxes and they have no hope of paying that off, they can then present themselves for a, a period of time to these debt camps in order to work away their debt 
And so now you see where the whole debt system is being transferred into a forced labor system, whereas it used to be much less explicit. But now for so many people in Greece who can't even get a job or even hope to repay it, they're just actually going to a debt labor camp. Well, the debt prisons are nothing new. I mean, this is the way that people have dealt with debt for hundreds of years. I mean, societies have put people away into debtor's prisons for as long as there's been societies and debt. When you can't pay your debts, that's where you go. You don't get, you don't declare bankruptcy in, in ancient, ancient Samaria. You went to the debtor's prison. Or slavery or something like that. And so, you know, we were talking about feudalism and the transition to capitalism. It appears more and more that capitalism is trans, uh, transitioning into neo-feudalism in, uh, in cases like these these debtor prisons. Some people who are definitely not in debtor's prison are those people who have been gracious and and nice enough to send us some money for the show. And those people are, are going to stay way out of debtor's prison because they have so much extra money that they can afford to send us some of their hard-earned dollar bills. Yeah, and, and that brings up a point. Do not donate to us if it's going to send you to debtor's prison. We really, <laughs> we really would hate for that to happen. Like, I, I understand if you appreciate our, our show and, and the work, but don't donate to us if you it will potentially put you in debtor's prison. And so we have a, a lot of really incredible people to thank for their contributions today. I wanted to start off with thanking Isaac, who sent us a Bitcoin donation. And that's really exciting whenever we can get a Bitcoin donation because digital currencies will be increasingly an interesting space in the coming years. And so... Thanks for sending us that Bitcoin, Isaac, and thanks for getting in touch with us by email because the Bitcoin donations are anonymous. So we actually don't know who's sending us a Bitcoin until they email us. And so if you send in a Bitcoin donation and you want a T-shirt and stickers, you know, email us so that way we can know who it is and where to send it. We also heard from Kevin out in Sweden. Kevin is a repeat donor. That means that he sent us money more than one time fantastic we love love repeat donators they are our bread and butter they're the people who make this show possible and we've had a lot of donations that have come in from sweden and from the scandinavian area so we very much appreciate our audience out in scandinavia and it's a very special place in my heart because that's where i studied abroad also thanks to nathan for his donation another repeat donator and that's so awesome to see that continued support we truly appreciate it we heard from michael in canada very, very uh, thank you so very much for that donation using our new Stripe donation method, uh, which is a alternative to PayPal. And we also got a donation from Sandra in New York. So thank you, Sandra, for, for donating from the northeastern U.S. Also, we heard from Dana uh, out in the newosphere. So thank you so very much for sending in your hard-earned money, Dana. We really appreciate it. So very nice of you to send us some of those monies. And we also got a great email from Dana recently talking about our interview on higher education and specifically uh, honing in on, on some of the comments from Keo Stark. Dana was saying, uh, I love Keo Stark, but she isn't really giving helpful advice to good students from working class families. And those kids don't have the family background, upper middle class social skills, resources, cultural literacy, and sometimes even the tone of voice or fashion styles that would allow them to infiltrate the ranks of science, programming, new media, etc. Dana says, I feel a traditional college environment is critical for these students. But that said, many of these students have very little money. So the best scenarios for them 
are to one go to a school that gives you a good sized academic scholarship and work part-time to pay as you go go to a community college for two years then a state university also working part-time dana says i did number one i was broken overworked the whole time but i made it and finished up with no debt and that's actually very similar to my experience i actually completely agree with that i think that keo's advice is really great but for me you know coming from a working class family without my university experience i definitely would not be able to do things like the show and many of the things that i do today and you know i think for a lot of people that really is a critical experience and i don't know how to reconcile that with a lot of the issues around the uh, the problems with higher ed and so dana goes on to comment that one good thing about traditional college is you learn things that you didn't choose to learn and so you know skipping plato because you're not interested means you don't get to find out by surprise that you love Plato. That's a, a really good point because when you have to take many of the classes that you do in university, sometimes they end up being a total waste of time and a total mess. But in my case, I had a bunch of classes that I had to take outside of my engineering curriculum when I was doing electrical engineering and physics in my undergrad that I learned a lot from. Uh, even if it was like my horror fiction class or my indigenous studies class, you know, you might think like, oh, what did that have to do with engineering? Well, they were part of the required broader curriculum that I had to take um, in just like general studies classes. And I chose those two classes to meet that requirement. And I got a lot out of those classes that impacted me in tremendous ways in the future. And so that is a really great point that if you're just going to vocational schools or doing online open courses, you're not going to get that experience. Dana, those are right on points. And you can't escape from the fact that a broad-based higher education experience will definitely open you up to all sorts of new and interesting topics about things that you've never heard about. And that's one of the nice things about going to higher education. And that's one of the things that you, you don't get when you only focus on a special specialized range of topics. And I, I think that uh, going back to the whole trivium method uh, of education, I think that the more that schools can focus on that whole aspect of rhetoric and learning how to speak intelligently about complex ideas will be very important in the future. And so whatever education looks like, I hope that that's a really core part of it. I wanted to get into a comment from Stephen who emailed in and said that my comment on the last podcast that it's not worth owning weapons like assault rifles to defend against an oppressive state because the state has unlimited funds and sophisticated weapons like tanks or drones ignores history. Consider Afghanistan or Syria or the insurgents of Iraq. A handful of poor sheep herders in Afghanistan have held off and eventually caused the U.S. to retreat with basically 50-year-old AK-47s. So that is a great point, Stephen. But one of the things that I learned from reading Dmitry Orlov's recent book on the five stages of collapse is the whole Pashtun system that these people in, uh, in Afghanistan were able to use in order to defeat the United States there, in order to defeat the USSR there as well. And so while it is about the weaponry that they were able to use to defend against uh, the you know oppressive uh, superpowers that were coming in and trying to invade their lands, it was equally part of their social system where they were able to communicate in ways where their digital conversations weren't picked up, where they had means of communicating and meeting face-to-face, -face, where they couldn't be tracked with complex sensors and, and drones and things, where if I go and make a cell phone call, then immediately it's going to be picked up by an NSA server in Utah. And so while the weapons were, were certainly a part of their ability to defend against that, it definitely is very a very different context than 
a lot of the people in the United States that want to defend against an oppressive government by owning weaponry because, as I brought up on the last show, I just don't think that's a very realistic option because even though you could potentially imagine a few decades in the future as the U.S. system uh, withers and falls in on itself that the power structure will be so weak that potentially some kind of revolution could be successful, it's nowhere near that point yet. And to think that using some kind of weaponry against, uh, you know, drones and tanks and a military that has engineered itself over the last decade to target small, hard to track militia groups and has set up a complex system of internal national surveillance and that some kind of nationalist group is, is not going to be immediately targeted and dismantled, I think is just unrealistic at this moment. That's not to say that some form of, of revolution wouldn't be possible in the United States in the long run. I just don't think it's possible anytime in the near future. I think if there is going to be a revolution that uh, you know uh, overthrows a government and institutes a new economic system or, or something, it's going to happen in another country. And that's what Morris Berman was talking about in, in our last episode. So thanks for that message, Stephen. And I really appreciate you bringing up that point. Hi, guys. Hey, it's from Australia. You Talk about me in your last episode, Christmas to make clear that I was a guy, but it was quite funny to, to hear you talk about me as a female. Uh, anyway, I'd just like to thank you a lot for um, your answer to my question. I am actually, like, looking to many alternatives, and it does help me a lot to, like, get some hope. Thank you, and thank you very much for your work. That's amazing. So sometimes it can be really difficult coming from an Anglo background where you're used to particular types of names to properly identify the gender of the person who writes in or makes a donation. <laughs> That's absolutely right, Justin. In this case, we made a huge mistake in misidentifying the gender of one of our fantastic writers in. And sometimes our uncultural viewpoints of, of life, of us being Americans, kind of put us into a disadvantage of interacting with folks from abroad and we can misidentify genders and you know we make mistakes sometimes but luckily for us we had one of our donators max call in and help to correct us and uh, our mistake so thanks to max Ons for being understanding of our limitations from being from north america and you know this is frankly why i'm sure that quebec wants to secede from the rest of english-speaking canada because we probably misidentify their genders and uh, mix things up and piss them off in ways that we don't even understand <laughs> because of the cultural barriers. So, you know, that's probably why they want to secede. French-speaking Canada wants to break away because we screw stuff like this up all the time. So thanks for your understanding. <laughs> so anyways... I, I wanted to say a special thanks to all the people who clicked on the links on our website and bought some things off Amazon. Whenever you buy anything off Amazon that you reach through any of the links that you find on our website, we get a little bit of money. So if you're going to order something from Amazon, why not do it through one of those links and also help support the show? We really appreciate it. I also wanted to thank Josh, one of our listeners and, and one of our collaborators who's been helping us out on the show for helping to record and film the interview with Rick Wolf. Uh, that constitute the second half of today's conversation with him. So thanks for that, Josh. And I also got a message from Rob, who in Vancouver is planning a permaculture workshop with Toby Hemingway coming up July 27th and 28th at the Van Dusen Botanical Garden in Vancouver. So shoot him an email at brewerycreekgarden at gmail.com. That's brewerycreekgarden at gmail.com. I'll include a link in our show notes if you're interested in that. But if you're in Vancouver, it'll be an excellent opportunity to learn more about urban permaculture. So if like Max Lons, we have mischaracterized your gender, if we've called you a man, 
man and you really are a woman or if you, we called you a woman and you really are a man, please let us know. It weighs heavily on our souls when we mess up the names of our fantastic donators or listeners in general. If you do want to hear more on the, about the show, you want to listen to archived episodes, we have lots and lots available head over to extraenvironmentalist.com where you can find all 60 episodes of our archive available and ready to download. You want to follow us on Twitter. We are X Environmental on there. Join our Facebook group where the con- discussion continues in depth. We post all sorts of fun articles and pictures and comments. And you can really in- engage in the community that this show has built. Leave us a voicemail anytime, day or night. It is online and ready to go. Find us on Skype. Find us on Stitcher Radio. So get out there and try to convince your boss to let everybody meet on Friday to help run the company. Has this ever happened to you? Error, error, corrupt data encountered. Unable to comply. You're already wondering how many months has it been since you backed up your data? Have you just lost your irreplaceable family pictures, that big presentation for work, or your favorite movies and music files? Well, you don't have to worry about losing your data ever again. Hi, my code name is Greg Orwell, and I'm the marketing director for the National Security Agency also known as NSA. Our clients will be thrilled at our newest data backup and paid retrieval services. And if you're an American citizen, you are already our client. Even if you've never signed up for our services, you can still call up the NSA and order a current, up-to-date backup of all the data on your hard drive, also including web-based emails, photos on social media sites, and data files in cloud storage. Best of all, we can beat any price charged by other data security companies like McAfee or DataLock. That's because we've already made backups of all your data, so you only pay our low, low administrative fee. Plus, with the renewal of the Patriot Act this year, Congress has authorized that our monthly data service fee and your health insurance payments can both be added to your tax payment at the end of the year in one convenient billing. Just fill out a simple 1040 NSA AHCIA EZ form with the IRS to receive your best financing options. Offer not available in rogue nations. Paid for by the Committee for Running Government Like a Business. next episode of The Extra Environmentalist, we'll be speaking with Fred Pierce about global land grabs and investments in farmland. And we'll also be speaking with Gregor McDonald about the global energy picture and what that's doing to ideas of investment. Well, they see it as an opportunity. Um, they see rising commodity prices around the world. Uh, They think that a good way of cashing in on those high prices is to buy 
buying or leasing the land that uh, they can grow the crops on. It's a problem for university endowments. It's a problem for corporate pension funds. It's a problem for state retirement funds because in a, in a world where central banks have stepped in to try to prime the pump of growth and they've used reflationary policy to prime the pump of growth, asset performance across asset classes are converging towards one, correlations becoming closer to one than it ever was before. You've got to give your client some asset class which doesn't correlate with other markets. And one of the asset classes that has become favored and popular in the last few years is farmland. Oh, hello. Welcome to the Corporate Democracy Innovation Lab, where we are figuring out the future of innovating around our corporate state. Buried deep beneath the Library of Congress, under stacks and stacks of books, is this dashing lab, where incredibly attractive people like me wearing white lab coats are developing the future of our government system. Let me introduce you to Nancy. She's going to take you on a tour of our fabulous lab. Hello, and welcome to the Corporate Democracy Innovation Lab. I am so very glad to have you here, and I I'm going to show you all around. Off to the right, you can see our first exhibit. You'll see our interdimensional 3D printer. It pulls fiat currency out of the fifth dimension. The fifth dimension is debt slavery. As our special innovation partnership with the Federal Reserve creates money out of nowhere, it increases the amount of money you'll be able to use to buy off your elected representatives. If you look at the current supply of M2 money, there's over $11 trillion out there. Divided amongst the 480 representatives, that's over $25 billion per representative that you use to get your votes heard. Wow, what an exciting way to make your vote hurt in dollars! Hey, how come all those dollars are going to that guy in the top hat and monocle? Don't worry about that. His pockets are so full, there's surely some cash that'll fall out. Let's go, folks, on to our next exhibit. Over here on the left, you'll see our sacrificial altar. This here is the Monsanto Sacrificial Altar. Well, you see, because zoos are running out of money to keep their animals alive due to all the austerity, and quantitative easing is no longer working to satisfy the gods of the market, now we're sacrificing zoo animals in order to calm the hungry Dow Jones. Alright, Dow Jones, it's time to eat up. It's a great way to satisfy the bloodlust that are the gods of our market system. Alright, Dow Jones, get ready for this elephant. <laughs> oh, I know it can be painful to watch, but you gotta keep the economy growing somehow. Here you see our, our giant blimp that we're putting together out of dollar bills. That's right, folks. This blimp is filled with nothing but dollars, and look how high it's floating. That's because dollars are made out of nothing but mostly air. In order to combat rising fuel costs, American Airlines has sponsored this blimp. It's so great, it can just float and float and float. It's kind of a metaphor for the global economy. All right, here it goes on its inaugural flight. Let's send it off into the air. What's happening? Why is there a spark? Oh my goodness! Oh my god! All the humanity and all the passengers speeding around it. Well, so much for that metaphor. As you can see in your tour here today at our Corporate Democracy Lab, corporations are innovating the future of your system. So don't worry, we've got everything under control.
thank you for coming on our tour. Make sure to make your way out to the gift shop where you can find figures of our famous friend Ben Bernanke, figurines to give to your friends and family. If you make a right after you get out of the gift shop, you'll find your way to our dead slavery camp where you can live happily for the rest of your life. Have a great day. Thank you.